this episode of the PA Path Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Lohenry, and we are glad you could join us as we seek to better understand the PA profession. And we chose to go all in. We take the same first 18 months, the identical didactic curriculum that the medical students do. We add a, a summer block as well for PAs only during that 18 months. And then as medical students go off to clinical training, our students go off to clinical training. Well, welcome to episode 15 and happy PA week. This is also the week of the annual conference for PAEA, the national institution that represents PA programs, educators, and students. So we wanna wish all of our educator colleagues the very best as they prepare their presentations for this week. Finally, today is National Coming Out Day and Indigenous Peoples Day. We celebrate the contributions and the courage from our LGBTQ colleagues and we recognize the invaluable contributions of indigenous peoples in our nation. Today, we interview Dr. David Asprey and Mr. Tony Brenneman from the University of Iowa's Carver College of Medicine. Year after year, their program is at the top of the US News and World Report rankings, and they share why their program continues to shine, including a nearly perfect certification pass rate, a very low attrition rate, and a unique curriculum that is shared with their medical students for the first 18 months of their education. As always, you can learn more about the two leaders on this episode and on our website at papathpodcast.com under the blog section for show notes. Well, Dave and Tony, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, before we get into the University of Iowa's PA school and, and what I think is a really unique curricular aspect because of your joint program with the medical school at the Carver College of Medicine. Could we first talk about your individual paths to becoming PAs? And, and whoever wishes to go first uh, can start. Sure, I'd be happy to share my uh, journey into this profession. So I grew up in southern Minnesota on a dairy farm, and I had three other brothers. So there were the four of us and first generation to go to, to, go to college. This is where the, the, the uh, truth comes out that's a little less glamorous, but I really went to college originally not for any great aspirations uh, other than to play football. And so I went off to college and played football that first year, but it was also becoming evident that with two older brothers who were working on the farm already, that that probably was not going to be a job opportunity for me. So while at college, decided that I should probably think about this a little more carefully. And so was very interested in the sciences in, in high school and traveled down the biology uh, degree pathway. But about sophomore year, decided, you know, if you're going to be a biology major, you probably need to have a, you know, a plan going forward with that. In other words, are you going the DNR route or are you going something healthcare? And so was intrigued by the healthcare idea. But again, having not had anyone in my family who was in medicine, not having had other family members who had gone off to college, really, uh, was a little uncertain about what to do, but continued down that path for a while. Until literally, I stumbled across a brochure that had been posted on a bulletin board outside one of the professor's offices that said physician assistant. And I had honestly never heard of that profession at that point. So very much intrigued by the idea of practicing medicine. Didn't really, you know, as I looked into actually going to medical school, thought there's no way I can afford to do that. You know, I would be so far in debt that it just was staggering for me to think about that. I could buy a house for the cost of tuition, et cetera. So I began to explore the PA profession, um, and it really started to resonate with me that I could be out 
uh, in practice much, much earlier with much less debt, but doing many of the same things that a physician would do that I thought I would derive a lot of satisfaction from. And so began to explore that, you know, there were at that time, there were no PA programs in Minnesota where I was from. So I began looking at neighboring states and eventually uh, landed at the University of Iowa and came down and interviewed with Dr. Oliver in his office. And uh, from there, the rest is history. That's uh, Denny Oliver, correct? That is correct. One of the legends of our profession. What position did you play? Just out of curiosity. So I was a free safety. You're pretty tall free safety. Well, actually, the the guy, when I started at Northwestern uh, College in the Twin Cities, the guy who was actually the starting free safety was a guy named Sherman Augustus, and he was from California, and uh, he went on to be actually an actor who was uh, had, had some fairly significant uh, work out there. So, yeah, he was taller than I was. So after you graduated from Iowa, what did you do from the graduation on? Yeah, so when I finished the program here, I had a couple of opportunities. One was to go back to Minnesota and work at the Mayo Clinic. Uh, which was just about 25 minutes from home. And I also had an opportunity, and that was an adult cardiology position. And I also had an opportunity in pediatric cardiology down here at the University of Iowa. And one of the things that certainly intrigued me or that I was found very interesting was this notion that when many of the patients that I had taken care of that were farther along in life, advanced in life, you know, I felt that it was really unfortunate that they didn't have an opportunity to address those problems earlier and prevent them. And so pediatric cardiology began to resonate with me in that obviously there was hope that, you know, in many of those cases, you might be able to not only address some of their medical needs related to their congenital heart defects, but also advise and counsel them and hopefully establish healthier habits for them that would prevent some of the other adult disease that we see many of our citizens acquire over time. And so that was something that really I found intriguing um, and uh, really enjoyed pediatric cardiology. It's a fascinating discipline. I would imagine. And uh, Tony, how about you? What led you to this uh, illustrious path of becoming a PA? I took a little bit of a circuitous route getting here. When I went off to college, I was thinking pre-med. And after my freshman year, uh, I changed directions and uh, focused more on um, the mental health kind of categories. Um, I got my undergraduate degree in psychology and also a degree in piano performance um, from Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon. I grew up out in in Oregon and and lived out there until I was about 29 or so before I moved to Iowa. Okay. And then uh, you moved to Iowa for PA school, I assume? Yeah. Well, so after I got my undergraduate degree and was trying to figure out what do you do with a psychology and piano performance degree, except, you know, maybe counsel alcoholics in bars. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, I decided that um, I needed a a different degree. So I went on and got my master's in social work. And I practiced in both emergency medicine for uh, a period of time in Portland, Oregon, and then moved into rehabilitation care. And then decided it was time to make a move. Um, so I, of all places, chose Iowa to move to. Um, I actually had some family in the area, so that kind of helped with that. And while here, I uh, met my wife, and she had a best friend that graduated from the University of Iowa PA program. And he was the one that introduced me to the, the PA profession. I'd never heard of it either um, before I moved to Iowa. 
And so I started talking with him, was really intrigued about the profession, especially as I'm now 30, 31, and I didn't want to do medical school at that point. So he did some real encouragement. I started meeting with Denny Oliver as well. I met Janet Steenledge, both long-term people here at the university, and, and they gave me some good directions on undergraduate courses. So I completed those and then applied. And Dave was on staff at that point. And he, he made the mistake of letting me in the program. So... <laughs> <laughs> And and what is really interesting is that you both went there and you've never left. <laughs> it's a cult. <laughs> a little bit. No, that is awesome. So, Tony, when you, you had this emergency medicine background from social work and, and the mental health background, how did you end up applying that into your PA career? Interesting uh, question, because, you know, on surface level, I'm not sure that it appears that it's there. When I graduated, we had a teaching fellowship that was available. So I did a, a teaching fellowship and was working in family medicine during that time. And then after I completed that, um, I went on to adult bone marrow transplant, where I have worked clinically for the rest of my career um, in clinical medicine. Although, uh, that being said, I use those skills every day when I'm up on the on that unit with uh, patients in various stages of life and the families that are going through some very traumatic periods of time. Um, so it's really been a um, useful skill for me clinically. And now as the program director here at the, the program, I uh, use it on a regular basis. Yeah, I'm, I'm jealous that that has a good background for your your typical PA program experience. So and I have to admit, this is the first time on the podcast we've had a dairy farmer and a social worker. So it's always good to get some different perspectives. Broadening your horizons. That's right. That's right. Dave, uh, what would you say, what are the lessons you learned on the farm that, that have carried through for you the rest of your career? That's an interesting question. You know, I, I would say, and this was something uh, even as I reflected back as we began to raise our, our own uh, family, you know, teaching some of those same things that I certainly learned on the farm, not so much by choice, but by the fact that it was just, you were presented with it and you had to find a way through it. So, you know, on a dairy farm, twice a day, every day, the cows do not take a break. They do not take a vacation. And so from that standpoint, just that perseverance, uh, maybe some grit that you just, you know, you maybe sometimes didn't even feel terribly well. You might've had a cold or been otherwise sick, but guess what? The work still has to somehow get done. And so I think that was a big part of it, um, but also, you know, a lot of teamwork, both with our family in terms of just figuring out how we were going to cover all the things that needed to be done in a typical day. And the, the weather is what it is. And so you had to sometimes divide and conquer in activities, which is still very true in both healthcare as well as in PA education. And so that, I think, was a very valuable lesson. But even teamwork with like neighbors, you know, in, in many cases, we had limited resources and we couldn't all afford the, you know, big fancy equipment that we only used a couple times a year. And so just partnering with uh, neighbors in the area who maybe had a certain uh, piece of equipment that we maybe could benefit immensely from for a short period of time, they would let us borrow that. And in turn, we would, would let them borrow things as they needed them from us. And so, yeah, I think just a lot, a lot about perseverance working through things. They don't have to be perfect always, but you, you know, you still have to work through them and find a way to get to the other side and then teamwork and, and certainly partnering uh, with others to use the resources that they have at the very true in PA school. I mean, you know, I had friends who were maybe a biochemistry major and I was not that they could certainly help me out and hopefully 
in turn, I had a way to provide them with some information maybe that they were not as uh, knowledgeable about. And so that's definitely carried over into the PA profession. I agree. I think PA school is a team sport for sure. And, and it's a great place to develop those team skills for when you get out into practice. So, so the University of Iowa's PA school is affiliated with the Carver College of Medicine, and, and you have a very impressive outcome uh, related to your national certification exam scores. I noticed on your website, it is uh, 99.99% have passed on their first attempt. Your pass rate's very impressive, and your attrition rate's very impressive. What is it about your school's admissions process that has led to such great outcomes? Well, well, that's a great question. I mean, you know, I, I will start by saying that we are definitely a unique PA program, unlike, you know, many others, perhaps, by the very nature that you were alluding to, which is that, you know, we do have our students come in and take coursework, you know, identical coursework with the medical students. And so we recognize that in many respects, we have to be cognizant of that fact. I mean, it would be, there's nothing more disheartening than potentially having a student come in that's just not a good match or a good fit for any number of reasons. And if they are not successful, if we cannot help them find the resources and help them with getting plugged into all the things that would benefit them and make them successful, then we potentially have kept somebody out of the profession who otherwise, perhaps at a different PA school, uh, that might have been a better match or fit with them, could have been a become a great PA. And so we, we work very hard, I think, to really recognize what are the unique characteristics and features about our particular program, and then how we identify those students who will do well. We're, we're obviously very fortunate from the standpoint that we have had over most of the years, a pretty robust applicant pool that gives us an opportunity to be reasonably selective. And so we look, you know, obviously for evidence that they have certainly been able to demonstrate the ability to do well on upper level science coursework for some period of time. Certainly, we have plenty who have gotten off to a rough start and then maybe have found their way at a later point in time to uh, be able to demonstrate that they can can do that when they are focused and motivated and have all the right things in place. So we definitely look for that aspect of it. But there, there's also just amazing resources that exist here that I think in a college of medicine, whether it's our counseling office, whether it's learning specialists, whether it's just the ability to plug in and get connected with lots of other PAs who are in practice here. So yeah, I think the success is in part, we are a relatively small class size. We can be somewhat selective. We have a strong applicant pool and can look for the right combination of academic ability, perseverance, grit, sort of the, you know, I think generally speaking, looking for individuals who just really have a heart for uh, medicine in terms of being able to give back and, and take care of patients and, and really just value that aspect of the, the career that we have. And so we've been fortunate. I'm not sure there's any special sauce per se. It's just uh, similar as we were talking about before, a lot of hard work, um, really just trying to make sure that we pick people who are going to be the right fit for our unique program. And Tony, as the program director, you manage the day-to-day -day operations, I would assume, internally. And Dave, as the department chair, you're more of an external focus. Is that accurate? Yeah. Okay. And so, Tony, from your perspective, I'm intrigued, and I think the PA educators listening might be interested to know, how do you manage that in conjunction with the medical school? Are you, as faculty, involved in teaching medical students as well? Yeah, that's something that has been, for me, just a really exciting part of being part of this faculty um, and part of the team that is Carver College of Medicine. Um, back in 1972, when our first class was admitted to this program, and I should say even the few years before that, as they were um, imagining a PA program here at the University of Iowa, 
they they really came at it with the understanding that we are teaching medicine to people to practice care in communities, sometimes very, very rurally, without a lot of supervision or you know resources available to them. So how are they going to do this? And so the people that were at the table, primarily physicians at that time, well, I would say all physicians at that time, um, or PhDs, um, said, well, they should be learning medicine. So let's get this, these people involved in the College of Medicine early on. And that's really been their attitude for the last 50 years. And we've only continued to increase our involvement and our students' involvement within the Carver College of Medicine over that period of time. And they have approached the faculty in much the same way. You are excellent teachers. Um, we want you involved in teaching both the PA and the medical students. So I'm sure we'll talk about this as we move forward, but and as Dave alluded to, we're, we're unique in that we're highly integrated with our current medical school, and our faculty are also highly integrated in that educational process. I am a course director for one of the major courses that runs through our, our curriculum. So I, I teach our 25 students as well as the 150 plus medical students, and there is no discrepancy between me as the, as the course director or a phys another physician as a course director or a PhD as a course director. And the students learn at the same rate, the same level, and, and the faculty also want us there. And if we're not at the table, they ask where we are. And so it's been a really synergistic process for both sides, I think, through this 50-year history that we have. One of my observations of working at USC over the past 10 years is I, I think the medical students are open and respectful to PAs and understanding, but there is a definite, I, I may have, maybe it's grown over the last decade, but at least early on, there was definitely a lack of understanding about what PAs are. How do you as an institution kind of orient them to this concept of a, a team approach to healthcare? And have you noticed the attitudes of the medical students over the years changing towards accepting your role in, in the team-based care? Yeah. yeah that, that's an interesting question. And, and so, yeah, as Tony has mentioned, we certainly have had increasing levels of integration with the College of Medicine and the medical student curriculum and being careful to make sure that, you know, that matches up with what we're trying to accomplish in terms of graduating great PAs and, and what things work well and how do we have to modify it a little bit to make sure that it aligns with what we're trying to accomplish for our, our program goals, et cetera. But, but for sure, I would say that we have had opportunities to have our students in the classroom side by side, and they perform comparably well. When we've done the, the studies and looked at it, their performance is uh, statistically, you know, no, no significant difference between their performance. And so from that standpoint, you know, they're demonstrating that they're very talented, very capable people who are learning medicine alongside them. It's kind of the grand, you know, experiment in terms of interprofessional education, you know, learning to from and about each other. They do it every day, whether they're at the anatomy table or whether they're in the classroom or whether they're in a small group together or learning history and physical exam skills with each other. They are just completely integrated in that respect. And so that that certainly is a part of it. We do have and we do look strategically for other ways that we can try to ensure that I think there is both role modeling as well as just a, a, a presence in the system that recognizes PAs. So as Tony mentioned, he's been a course director for several years in that first semester for the medical students and PA students, then here is a PA faculty member who is in charge of the course and is responsible for it. I serve as the chair of the Medical Arts and Science Committee, which really oversees the first three semesters of the medical school curriculum. And so 
they see see us there. They provide us an opportunity to to lecture in in the first couple of weeks with the medical students and PA students about the two professions and just what are the similarities, what are some of the differences, and how does that benefit us? I think the really great thing too is that, as Tony also had referenced, is that the College of Medicine administration and the College of Medicine folks who are in charge of the education and the curriculum really do want to find ways to make sure that the PAs are at the table and are upfront in, in some of those roles. So that again, medicine, as we mentioned, is a team sport for sure. And having those examples and those cases there so that everyone gets a chance to see that indeed, they're going to be out in practice shortly working alongside people in the conference rooms and in the uh, exam rooms, et cetera, where that relationship is really critical to providing great high quality care. And so there have been considerable strides made, I think, in terms of just recognizing the role of PAs play here at College of Medicine. And uh, fortunately, they have gone to great lengths to make sure that that shows up in our education. It is not unusual to have leadership changes in medical schools at the dean level. How has the University of Iowa continued that when you have a dean coming in every presumably six to 10 years, a change in leadership that maybe has a different philosophy about this? Yeah, that's an interesting question as well. We certainly have had several deans who have come along and, and moved through the system. And, and there is a learning curve, to be honest about it. In some cases, you know, we are a relatively small number of students in the grand scheme of uh, the number of you know, medical students that are present here. But fortunately, again, um, you know, we have been embedded. We have a proven track record of having students who have done well in the system. I think that we, we recognize that the national ranking system is not the be all and end all, but that oftentimes with deans is something they do pay attention to. And so having been favorably ranked in the U.S. News and World Report rankings has also, I think, been another way that just earns us a little bit of credibility when our colleagues around the country say favorable things about us. I think that helps us too, just to earn some respect from the deans as they come in. And then usually over time, as they begin to interact with us and have more meaningful interactions with our students and our faculty, I think we have been consistently able to slowly but surely win them all over. And I will add that Dave is being a bit humble on this one as well, in that because we are a department, he's on the same level as the head of internal medicine or the head of pediatrics, as an example. So he meets regularly with those deans and the dean that he's talking about, that the dean that shifts on a regular basis. And so we have a direct conduit to representing our profession, our education, and the models that have been in existence for a long time. So I think that is another key piece that Dave didn't highlight, and I, I, I'll do it for him. <laughs> so uh, let's talk a little bit more about the program. You, you're a 28-month program, as I recall. And you, this concept of, of cohabitation with the medical students and taking the same courses, it sounds similar to kind of the, if you recall, uh, several PAEA meetings ago. I remember Tony Miller, Anita Glickin, I'm sure there were others that talked about this concept of getting on the train at the same station, and then certain professions step off the train down the path, so to speak. Is that the way this actually works? Do your, your students start with the medical students in the majority of their classes, and then at some point in time, they step out and the medical students continue on in their basic science curriculum? In 2012, the College of Medicine decided to relook at its curriculum. Prior to that, they had been very discrete courses, you know, pharmacology, biochemistry, immunology, taken in sequences. In 2012, they relooked at their curriculum and really looked at 
The model that's coming across, I think, across the United States, a very integrated um, model of education. So you're not just taking discrete courses on a particular topic. Um, they're integrated with physiology, pathophysiology, treatment, evidence-based medicine, all of those things. And so they, they really wanted to look at how do we do this in a new curriculum format. And so uh, they came up with this, what we'll call three plus five model for the medical students. So three semesters of didactic curriculum and five semesters of, of clinical training. And then came up with these three major strands that run through, through the curriculum. Um, the three are predominantly well-noted within the didactic phases, but they continue on in the clinical phases as well. Because we moved from discrete courses where we as PAs could choose, you know, I want this particular course or that particular course, we need to decide, are we going to make our own program or are we going to go all in? And, and we chose to go all in. We take the same first 18 months, the identical didactic curriculum that the medical students do. We add a, a summer block as well for PAs only during that 18 months. And then as the medical students go off to clinical training, our students go off to clinical training. Some of those rotations are identical to the medical students, and we try to get our students out outside of the university as much as possible. We recognize, you know, that when you are in an academic health center, there's a lot of competing learners that are, are trying to get into those particular rotations. And we really do want to train learners to be able to practice in rural and underserved settings. And so getting them into those locations is ideal for that. One and two, it puts them one on one with preceptors that can do that kind of regular education and give those uh, learners great hands on experiences that they may or may not get at, a, at a, an academic health center. So, historically, medical schools will often have their rotations for their students uh, to be ward based. They're going to be at the academic medical center for the majority, with the exception of maybe a couple of electives. Whereas you all, have the majority outside of the academic medical center with a few exceptions. Is that accurate? Yeah, that would that is accurate. Uh, you know, we have the fortune of still being connected, obviously, with this academic health center. So when students want to do electives, you know, we have literally every kind of subspecialty and superspecialty um, that's available um, in healthcare. So our students can tap into those if that's an area of interest for them. And then we try to get them out um, for those core rotations in those, in those more one-on-one -on -one kinds of situations. Okay. How did the pandemic impact your educational curriculum? And, and what, what are you doing differently now that you didn't do before? Yeah. Um, my favorite quote from one of our students that has graduated was, well, now you have how to handle a pandemic in your handbook. And my... <laughs> My, was, my response was, I didn't want one in my handbook, but. <laughs> oh my gosh, that, um, is, that is so true. So like most programs, we did a modification to online. Um, certainly for the didactic phases, many of the uh, courses were delivered through Zoom. We always had used Panopto, a recording device for capturing lectures. For students to then review later uh, at a later time. So we continued with those kinds of things. Some of the challenging pieces were, you know, how do you teach physical exam? Um, it, you just cannot do that successfully, in my opinion, through a remote process. And, and we were very fortunate to be given the opportunity to 
still have our students do some uh, of that training in person. And we did modify the way we um, did that training. So prior to the pandemic, we uh, were using PETAs, physical exam teaching associates, um, that the students got to practice the skills on and learn from because we train our, our PETAs how to do the physical exam as well. So they're teaching and learning from those individuals. With the pandemic, we had to move to students doing them are doing those exams on each other. And we put what we called PETA on poles. We had our PETAs zooming in on an iPad. They were on a roller. The students could tilt the iPad so that they could see what was going on so that we had individual trainers in each of those rooms when the students were there and, and learning on, on each other. We've now been able to go back with vaccination rate in this area and, and how we're performing. Always, you know, fully masked and doing those kinds of things. I don't know about you guys, but for me, like the the stress on us as leaders for the safety of our students and our team members, and particularly when we also got back to teaching in person, was was immense. And I was just so thankful that we got through this to date um, yeah. without any loss of life. But it's been so many of our students are living in multi generational homes and they're terrified to bring these things back home. So it's not without significant stress for all of us. And I think one other notable thing about it too, is that delivering a high high quality um, graduate level healthcare education is challenging enough when everything is going relatively smoothly. When you put something in place like the pandemic that I felt like we were kind of just ultimately in the crosshairs of this pandemic from the standpoint that we had many of our faculty and, and others who were provi- still providing healthcare, at least part time, you know, trying to continue to carry their part of the load. Um, and that was obviously immensely impacted, um, whether they were going to virtual visits, whether they were, you know, shifting over and doing the COVID screening, you name it. And education could not have been more in the crosshairs from the standpoint of how it turned us upside down in terms of how we delivered a lot of our curriculum. So we, we really did find ourselves, I think, you know, in a very stressful and, and challenging time. And then when you add to that, the other piece that has been very notable to me is that people respond incredibly different to the pandemic. So personality types, backgrounds, you name it, all come into the mix. And while two people might look at the exact same proposed event, the response to that, it could be could not be any different in many cases. And so. I I found that to be just the other piece that was a a real challenge as an educator is trying to strike a reasonable balance where we did everything we could to reasonably mitigate the risks, but also recognizing that there are just certain elements. As Tony was mentioning about, you know, the physical exam, finding ways to still do the necessary pieces in person and also helping them to realize that, you know, this is a part of medicine. You're, You're entering a profession where you will have those instances where you're going to be putting yourself in at risk in some cases as you interact with your patients and the conditions they have. So it has been, you know, certainly a stressful time for educators, but also an incredible sort of learning milieu, if, if you will, where um, it, that's just where the rubber meets the road as a provider today. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the students, from my experience, were, you know, they're paying tuition. So they're frustrated that they're being locked out of the classrooms and they foresaw it, at least initially, as a very different experience. But then talk about the staff and, and the non-healthcare providers who support your work. And it's a, it's a very different fear factor for them. And, and I, I think even us as clinicians, we're, we're very concerned. But 
also, as you said, Dave, we, we are around infectious disease in our careers, so we're used to the risk and how to mitigate it with PPE and things like that. Let's talk a little bit about your illustrious careers in leadership. You two are, given your uh, backgrounds, you, you both kind of picked a different angle a little bit. Dave, you've been uh, president of PAEA, or, or was it APAP at the time? It was. It was APAP at that point, correct. Yeah. And um, you've also been the editor-in-chief for the Journal for PA Education. You're a, a scholar and often a gentleman. <laughs> <laughs> Someday. <laughs> yes, a scholar and a gentleman. What what led you to want to do more leadership? Was that through mentorship with Danny Oliver? Or, or what was kind of your initial foray into going into leadership and serving the profession? Yeah, so, I mean, again, I, I literally sort of stumbled into the profession in terms of finding a brochure and, and going down that path without any great assurance as to what that would really look like. I guess I have always had some uh, predilection, if you will, to leadership roles, you know, and so whether it was being captain of a sports team, whether it was taking a lead role in the class in, in, in high school or whatever. So I think I had some of those um, natural inclinations along the way. Um, but as I got into the PA profession, ultimately got into a uh, faculty position, I, re I can remember very clearly receiving one of the, you know, publications that came out and it was advertising a position at that time with the American Academy of PAs for the Education Council. And Kate Yatiri Bird was the then the chair of that particular council. And I thought that sounds like an awesome thing where, you know, you would have an opportunity to use the skills that you maybe have developed as an educator but then speak into the profession on, on a larger role. And so uh, I don't recall exactly which conference we were at, but the AAPA conference that year, I thought I'm gonna find Kate Yatiri Bird and introduce myself to her, and I'm gonna see where this goes. And so applied for the position, I ultimately got on the Education Council, I had a great opportunity to work with a lot of other individuals in a leadership role that just sort of fueled that passion for being able to use, use my skills, but also give back to a profession that I felt like was just, that I was super fortunate to be a part of. So that kind of fueled the fire a little bit for me. Uh, Tony Miller uh, came on from the PA APAP side at that point. And so we'll get to work with Tony early on in those years, got to be uh, introduced to lots of other individuals and, and just recognize that there is a really important role for PA and PA educators to play in terms of preparing others to, you know, have both maybe an easier opportunity to get involved in the profession, to just provide better services to, to each other, to give resources to each other. And so I was fortunate enough to just find myself, I think, surrounded by people who were smarter and wiser than me that often made me look better than I perhaps really am, that, that little unknown secret. But it's, yeah, it's been, it's, for me, it's been a passion to give back to a profession that I just really feel blessed to be a part of. And you just recently stepped down after many years as the uh, editor of the journal. Tell us a little bit more about the Journal of PA Education. Yes. So actually, uh, technically speaking, um, I will actually finish up at the end of the uh, calendar year. And so I have a couple more months left to go here. But yeah, it, that has been an amazing opportunity that I have just really been fortunate to be a part of as well as you probably both are familiar with. Um, Don Peterson really kind of got this whole process with the journal going. It used to be called Perspectives. And I can remember when it was a stapled set of papers that came out to us in the mail. And then eventually he had created an opportunity to make it a little more fancier and uh, worked internally in his place. And he eventually passed it off to 
then APAP, um, who took it over and began producing it in-house. And Gene Jones then became the next editor-in-chief. And uh, he did a great job of really, I think, advancing the journal for several years. My first foray really into it after doing uh, publishing a few manuscripts was that Gene um, was looking for a new abstracts and brief report editor. And the, the really fun thing about that particular position was that we recognized that there were many of our colleagues who were not formally trained in research, who were not formally trained in doing a lot of publications or preparing manuscripts. And so here was an opportunity for people who maybe had made it uh, implemented some kind of intervention in their program to prepare a manuscript and share that with their colleagues around the country. And so it was both scholarship, but also an opportunity to, to share that new thing that they were doing. And um, there was a fair amount of handholding, to be honest about it, in many of those cases where you really just did come alongside them to really help them um, prepare the manuscripts and maybe give them a little more feedback and a little more mentoring than they otherwise would receive from a traditional submission of a manuscript. So that abstracts and brief reports um, role really helped me just recognize what a great thing uh, this was to give our colleagues an opportunity to share the great things they were doing in their programs around the country with a wider audience. And, and that led then obviously to an opportunity to ultimately serve as the editor-in-chief of the Journal of PA Education for the last uh, almost nine years now. And so again, um, just very humbling to see people who are really passionate and interested in sharing their good work and submitting it to our journal uh, where they have a, have a chance to have it reviewed by their peers who give them feedback, sometimes valued, sometimes maybe not so valued, uh, just because it's always difficult to have your own personal work put on display in a way where people will provide feedback on it that can sometimes, it's hard not to take it personally in some cases. So, but very fortunate to have worked closely with a lot of great people on the editorial board, lots of great feature editors who have just really advanced the, uh, the journal, probably in spite of me, some would tell you. Tony, your path, you know, you and I had the pleasure of serving on the board uh, for PAEA for many years. So I know of your, your PAEA roles. Maybe talk a little bit about that. And also, you've been really involved in accreditation, too. And as I recall, you were also involved with the Academy at one point. What was your interest for that? And, and what has been maybe your most enjoyable part so far? Yeah, I was fortunate to be our student AOR when I was going through the program. And that's what really gave me the initial buzz, jazz, whatever you want to say about leadership. And to bring home that as what Dave was talking about, that passion um, uh, for, for this profession and really wanting to move the profession forward and seeing that we can, you know, as PAs, depending on the roles that we that we hold, can move our profession forward. And so that initial taste got me really excited. And then um, coming on to our faculty and having the mentorship of Dave and um, Rick Dean um, and others that really encouraged leadership opportunities, really, really continued to, to foster that in me and the desire to do more. You know, it led to being uh, president of our state association, as you said, the, the PAEA board, all very, very exciting um, opportunities. I was on um, AAPA in their, what was then called CSAC or their uh, clinical and scientific council and had a lot of great opportunity to work with through that council and the, the journal because we were writing articles for that particular, uh, from that particular council. 
And, and then now uh, shifting over into our accrediting um, organization and, and being a commissioner within the, the accrediting uh, body, it's just been um, another great opportunity to um, learn more about our profession and to advance our students. Um, you know, I think being a program director, I understand the pain and the agony that goes into um, being getting ready for and having a site visit done. There's a significant amount of work, and I and I always approach it as you know this is for our patients and for our students, and we need to at least meet the floor, which is the accreditation of of a program, and how do we exceed that floor that being asked for us to at least meet because it's going to pay off for our students, it's going to pay off for our patients, and then it's ultimately going to pay off for our profession. So it's really been a nice, for me, it's been a nice overview of being able to see the entire organization at work. And it sounds like the two of you have been able to carve out uh, ample time to support these external organizations that have helped the profession grow, because you have an institution that really embraces leadership. And you also have this integrated model. So it sounds like there's enough flexibility in your schedules to, to make it work, even though we all know it's a lot of extra work beyond our usual. Yeah. Don't, don't ask either one of our wives. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, you just make a good point. I think um, in that, you know, we, we do have some flexibility in our scheduling uh, with, with the fact that we do partner with the college of medicine and the larger curriculum. And so I have great uh, appreciation for many of our colleagues who work in a setting where they really are the face that's really every, pretty much every morning or every day up front in the classroom or sitting in on the lectures, even if guest lectures are coming in. And so, you know, that is, I think, a, an area for potential growth in our profession is continuing to find ways where our colleagues have a little bit of bandwidth, where while, yes, they're still primarily educators, they also have those opportunities for scholarship and leadership. Because I think that does advance our individual programs. It does advance our profession. And ultimately, I think we have a lot to offer to just other health educators in general around the country. Yeah. So given your leadership perspectives, you've, you've certainly read the tea leaves of the profession for a long time. And there are a lot of changes coming along in our profession. The name change that was voted on upon the American Academy of PAs, House of Delegates last uh, spring there's always this, this kind of underlying conversation of the doctorate. What are your thoughts about the future of our profession? What, what makes you excited uh, and what gives you pause? So I, I still remain very optimistic uh, for the most part, very excited about the future of the PA profession. I at the same time recognize that we're going through a really rapid period of change in a lot of respects. So for those of us who have been around the PA profession for a long time, I think that many of us have sort of prided ourselves on being a unique healthcare provider group from the standpoint that, you know, we often were individuals who had worked in some capacity in sort of the front lines doing, you know, I was an orderly, lots of people were EMTs or nurse aides or you name it. And so we had sort of seen healthcare from that vantage point. And I think that gave us a great appreciation for the many different roles and how they inter interact with each other and how they can help make sure we deliver great care. Looking at some of the other health professions and, and particular providers, so whether it's MDs or nurse practitioners or others who are in those similar roles, you know, I think some of us are concerned that perhaps we're becoming a little more like some of our physician colleagues, not that our physician colleagues are bad people by any stretch. But I think there have been some unique elements about the role of the PA 
that we would really like to hold on to as we continue to move forward. Um, but also recognizing that there are some, some areas where continued growth and improving our educational uh, system as we train our PAs is very valuable. So I think that for me is the real, at the crux of us being successful going forward, is really being thoughtful, deliberate, purposeful about the areas and aspects of our profession that have been successful for us and we can carry forward. And at the same time, recognizing the new settings that we're practicing in, the new expectations that are provided to those of our graduates who go into practice and really you know, making sure that we do a, a really good job of keeping those things that have been very valuable and very successful to us as a profession, but also adapting to the new reality in which our providers are finding themselves. Tony, how about you? Yeah, I absolutely agree with everything that Dave has said. And I am very mixed on, you know, this this move of the degree creep. Um, I, you know, I think that there are some legitimate reasons why a person would want to consider a higher degree for their practice, for their profession, for the setting that they find themselves in. And I'm very concerned about what kind of barriers that adds to our profession for those that are first-time attenders to college, or for those that haven't had the same advantages of others in going through this, and for the potential increase in debt load that can go, go along with higher degrees. And so I understand reasoning behind the discussions and the desire for it. And as Dave was talking about earlier, that we really need to be very thoughtful and very introspective about what's driving this. Is this best for our profession? Is this going to serve our patients in a better way than that we are today. Is the genie out of the bottle? Yeah. Uh, yes, it is. And how are we going to navigate this in the best way for our patients and for our students um, uh, moving forward? Yeah. And I, I, both of you talk about this patients, right? It's really about the patients. What makes the most sense for the patients? We as a profession have always existed because we were able to cover gaps that were not being met for our patients related to access to healthcare. And my own experiences with my father, watching PAs, nurse practitioners, pharmacists come into his bedside after a, a head injury, the physicians were there for two minutes. They're very important in the process because they're the ones who drilled the hole in his head to help relieve the pressure on the brain. But the rest of the healthcare team were present much more frequently, and it really I think contributed to really great outcomes because it, again, it's about the team in my mind. So you two are at a program that's well-established. You obviously have an applicant pool that is driven to apply to your school um, with few seats. So a lot of your applicants are well-qualified candidates who end up going elsewhere. What are some of those go-to tips that you love to share with applicants so that they can be successful in their journey to become PAs? certainly for our program, but I think this applies to most PA programs that are out there, is all of us are looking for certain grade points, but are you able to take on several science courses at a time or, you know, a couple of science courses and you're an athlete or you are having to work um, your way through college? Are you able to balance life along with the coursework that you're doing and still achieve at a certain level. You know, I think one of the big challenges is always looking at applicants that, yeah, they have a 4.0, but they took one science course at a time, or they were taking only 12 
credits in a semester at a time. And so stepping into any PA program where you're all of a sudden now uh, asked to do maybe 20 to 25 credits in a semester and predominantly all science at one time, can you balance all of that? Can you achieve and feel successful even if you're not at a level that you think that you've learned to be at prior to this in an undergraduate setting? So I think that's some of the things that I think I look for when I'm trying to, I really do try to look at, at each applicant holistically and what are the other things that they're bringing to the table? What were the other experiences that they were dealing with as they were going through that undergraduate experience in order to demonstrate that they that they have that grit that David mentioned earlier or that resilience um, that will pay off for them astronomically through a PA program, but also as you're caring for patients from all walks of life and all levels of understanding and emotional output that's occurring because of that disease uh, process that they're affecting. Sure. So, so what I hear you saying is there are, that, that applicants do encounter typically some challenges in life. And when that happens, it is a benefit to them to actually articulate in their application what was going on and how they overcame it. Absolutely. Okay. How about you, Dave? Any, any go-to tips? Yeah, I, I think, uh, as Tony was also mentioning, that we, we do look for individuals who have had a, a breadth of experiences, both life experiences as well as educational experiences or other types of experiences. There, there are lots of talented people who can go straight through undergraduate and maybe uh, have very few academic, if any academic blemishes on their record. But when we also then look at some of the other elements that we think help to make sure that they have great qualities and traits that will make them successful in a medical profession, those can be things that, gosh, maybe you have been in a sport that just requires incredible discipline. You've got to get up early and go to the swimming pool, or you've got to get up early and go lift weights, or you've got to do those other things that, you know, are not glamorous, but that you just recognize that over the long haul are going to benefit you immensely as you continue to advance and, and uh, make yourself ready for a profession like this. So we do, we do look to see, you know, have they been involved in those kinds of activities? Did, did they also work a job while they were going to school? So it could be that, you know, they were trying to acquire their uh, healthcare experiences along the way. And so they worked as a CNA on the weekends, or they worked on an EMT group for a while to, to just either pay bills or just to make sure that they got all the experiences that they needed. Life happens to you while you're going through a very rigorous training. And for those students who have something in their background that, that sort of gives them a perspective and says, yes, I did poorly on this one exam, but I know that doesn't define me, that, you know, that uh, if I am willing to reach out and ask for help and recognize where I can improve, if I am willing to, you know, partner with some of my colleagues to learn maybe an area that they have per a particular good grasp of, if I'm willing to reach out even to the counseling office to maybe help me with some test taking strategies, whatever that might look like. If they have that background that has prepared them well to be able to deal with adversity when it comes up and know that they can persevere through this if they reach out and ask for help, if they look for ways that they can continue to improve. So those are important things. You know, we, we definitely take a number of students who maybe even just when they started in their um, academic career were not focused, did not really know what they wanted to do. And so their grades reflect that. But at some point along the way, the light bulb went off for them and they realized, gosh, I would really like to be in, in healthcare. And if I'm going to do that, I'm going to have to demonstrate that I can do these science courses and do them well. 
And so they do sustain over a year or two period of time and demonstrate the ability that they can really do that. Again, those are those are people who I think have life lessons that are really valuable to giving them the the total package, not just being a you know really good student in the classroom, but are going to be those people who can relate to a patient very well, establish rapport easily, and relate to adversity and difficulty that maybe their patients are experiencing, and just really come alongside the patient and be a great provider. I was actually one of those students. I I went to college wanting to be a PT because it seemed cool but uh, also didn't do very well. And, you know, early on, and then I did well after that, but it was, uh, you got to find your passion, your why, and then suddenly you, you shine. So that's great that you're, you're open to that. You know, that, that'd be an interesting thing for, for some of us to eventually do would be to go and look at the PA educators around the country who have some of those checkered <laughs> pasts, honestly, and highlight them. instead of, instead of burying them in a file or a closet somewhere, we ought to actually celebrate some of those and highlight the fact that for some of those applicants who maybe did get off to a rough start, like some of us did, that, you know what, that, that doesn't mean that you cannot accomplish um, what many others have done if you're just willing to keep putting one foot in front of the other and reaching out and asking for help when you need it. I agree. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time today. It has been a real pleasure to have you on and, and what an impressive institution you're working at and the work that you two have done professionally has been very inspiring for all of us. And I wish you the very best in your future. Thanks, Kevin. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, thank you very much. Well, I'd like to thank Dave and Tony for sharing their insights about the University of Iowa PA program and about their contributions to the profession. These two have modeled for every aspect of a strong PA educational program, including accreditation, teaching, curriculum design, faculty development, leadership, research, scholarship, and service. And we had a lot of fun catching up today. Tune in next week as Stephanie and I speak with Mr. Matthew McQuillan, the newly appointed department chair for the Rutgers School of Health Professions Department of Physician Assistant Studies and Practice. We'll talk with Matt about his new role, his program, and his insights on the profession. We'll also talk with Matt about his doctoral work in the medical humanities and of course, leadership. Matt is yet another example of how PAs contribute to the world through their leadership to the profession, their institutions, and to their communities. Until next time, I wish you success with whatever path you are walking in life, and thank you for joining us. The purpose of this podcast is to provide news and information on the PA profession and is for informational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and guests and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policy of the University of Southern California.